0: This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Diring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Diring, Professor of Accounting at Duke University. And I am joined, as always, by the Tax Museum Curator and Professor of Accounting, At the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Jeffrey L. Hoops. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. Do you know what's happening today, Jeffrey?
1: Uh, What's happening
0: today? The State of the Union.
1: Oh, yeah, the State of the Union.
0: Correct. Do you print those and put them in the tax museum? I do not. You should. They almost always talk about taxes. Maybe I will. All right. Well, the State of the Union is happening tonight, but that is not what we're talking about. What are we talking about today?
1: So we are talking with two amazing people, Evelyn Smith and Hattie L. Zane. Uh, Hattie and Evelyn, do you want to introduce yourselves?
2: Hi, my name's Evelyn Smith. I am a PhD candidate in economics at the University of Michigan, and I'm also a visiting fellow at Stanford Reg Lab.
1: And I'll
3: go next. Uh, hi, I'm Hattie L. Zane. Uh, I did my PhD in applied math at the University of Pennsylvania, and I was a postdoc at Stanford when we did this work.
1: Okay, and so we're here to talk about a recent paper that you two We're co co authors on. Can you tell us a little bit, just at a very high level, what your study finds?
2: Certainly. Uh, So, our main finding is that black taxpayers are three to five times as likely to be audited as non black taxpayers. You know, this is a, a big finding, it's a troubling finding. And importantly, we find that this difference in audit rates is not attributable to differences in the underlying dollar amount. Of underreporting. Instead, what we find is that these differences are driven uh, by the types of issues that IRS has historically focused on in its audits, you know, these small-dollar high-certainty cases and this focus on specific eligibility issues for refundable credits. Um, And then another important finding here is that, um, you know, I think going into this project we expected to some extent that any disparities we found might be explained by say differences in the rate of claiming the earned income tax credit across groups and the generally high audit rate for EITC claimants. Uh, But actually what we found is that these disparities are concentrated within the population of EITC claimants. So black EITC claimants are much more likely to be audited than non-black EITC claimants.
1: So, they, so they're much more likely to be audited. Are they three to five times as likely to be audited as non-black EITC claimants?
2: So most of the disparities we find are concentrated within that population. Yes.
0: Hey, by the way, just to clarify for uh, my father, he doesn't know what the EITC is, which is the earned income tax credit for those uh, non-tax geeks out there who might be listening. Um, so, yeah. Um, that's that's pretty interesting finding. And, and I have to say, when I first uh, heard about the paper, probably on Twitter or something, um, my first thought was, I can't like who at the IRS just like looks at the race box on the tax return and decides to audit uh, a certain race more than others. And I guess after I read the paper, that's not quite the case. Do you want to explain to us Why?
3: Yes. So first off, the IRS does not uh, collect race. Um, and that's a really important point um, because we, we think that this means there's not really the scope for any sort of intentional uh, discrimination or uh, you know, design that is intentionally meant to, to uh, treat taxpayers differently based on their race. We're not saying that, that that's what's going on here. Um, instead, it's a story about how certain choices – that are made in the design of these policies can disproportionately impact some groups uh, over others. Um, And and that also means that, uh, you know, measuring these disparities is not so straightforward because the IRS does not collect race. So how do you even ask a question like, are black taxpayers audited at different rates than non-black taxpayers? Um, And so we had to develop a methodology to use this, uh, to do this, I mean, we use a methodology that already exists to, to impute race, but then to, to use these imputations in a way to estimate our, um, you know, question of interest, which is what is this disparity uh, required some, some methodological work. Um, And I'm happy to, to jump into to how that method actually works. uh, If that's interesting. Yeah, please do. Yeah. So, so the method for, for getting imputations is is called um, Bayesian imputations with, uh, surname and geolocation. Um, and basically the idea is to combine the statistical information that's contained in things that the that the IRS does have access to, so name and, and location, um, and combine that in a quantitative way to get a sort of probabilistic prediction about the likelihood that a taxpayer is, let's say, black. Um, and what's important is that it's, it's not the case that this method is going to be perfect, right? We're not saying that every taxpayer we think, uh, you know, we assign a high confidence to being black is in fact black. There will be cases where, you know, we think that this taxpayer is likely to be black and they're in fact not, or we think that this taxpayer is unlikely to be black and they are. So that's okay as long as the way in which any of these uh, mistakes are distributed does not, uh, you know, create uh, too much of a statistical bias in our uh, ultimate uh, outcome estimation. So we develop a couple estimators in the paper uh, and we analyze the conditions under which these estimators actually form an upper and lower bound on the ground truth disparity. Um, and then we look at a uh, auxiliary data set, um, which does have self-reported uh, ground truth uh, race and use that to, to validate that the conditions that um, you know, we need for these methods to actually give us bounds on the truth uh, seem to hold. Um, and so that's what we do. And we use that That auxiliary data set comes from publicly uh, available data, um, voter records from North Carolina, which was matched for us and anonymized uh, uh, for our use.
0: So, all right, a couple, couple questions. So to be clear, this is doing something like taking a person's name and um, where they live. So, for example, Scott Diring lives in North Carolina, and you would match that against some kind of... Um, Data on names and races that you get from like the Census Bureau or something like that, and you would say the probability that Scott Diring, who lives in North Carolina, is white, is high because there's not a lot of people named Scott Diring in the Census data that are black. Is that how it works? Yeah,
3: that's 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 basically correct. Um, the the it's it's slightly more complicated in like I guess how we actually combine the information. And we don't have the full distribution of first name, last name, geography, because then we basically just have all the data. Right. But the census releases, um, you know, last name tabulations by by race um, for first names. There's uh, I believe the source is from Hamda, but there are you know, data sets that have this. Um, and then for geography, we're using census block group um, distributions.
0: What's what is a census block group? Like a zip code? It's
3: smaller than a zip code. Smaller
0: uh, than a zip code. Okay, yes. that's good enough. But it's like, it's a pretty pretty accurate geographic location.
1: Pretty small, small much smaller than a zip code, actually.
3: Uh, sorry, but we're using census block groups. So there's census block, which is very, very small, census block group. And then census block group is still a lot smaller than a zip code.
0: You said something I think that's kind of important, which is because the IRS doesn't collect race data. They don't actually have it. So it doesn't appear as though anyone intentionally acted in a racist way. Um, what, What happened? Is this a result of Congress enacting a law that has ramifications that disproportionately affect races in different ways? Or is it the IRS creating an audit model that disproportionately affects races in different ways. And those seem like kind of two very different things.
2: I can take this one. Uh, You know, there isn't a smoking gun in this case, right? You know, we don't have full visibility over all the mechanisms that IRS uses to select cases for audit. You know, we have a lot of legacy systems, decision rules, and in some cases, algorithms uh, that are, you know, that we're working with in this case. And uh, you know, it's the combination of those systems that really is driving the results that we see. And I think the point you made about congressional press- pressure is also relevant here. Right. Uh, for a long time, Congress has really harped on uh, EITC noncompliance, potentially people claiming this credit incorrectly or fraudulently uh, and pressuring IRS to focus on detecting fraud before those payments go out. So that's, you know, that's part of the story here, but I think it's it's really all of these things taken together that, uh, you know, are really driving the disparities that we observe.
1: So it seems like you talk in the paper about three different things. It was three different, like, parts of the model that might lead to this result. You talk about designing audit selection algorithms to minimize the no-change rate, targeting erroneously claimed refundable credits rather than total underreporting, and limiting the share of more complex EITC returns that can be selected for audit. So, can you talk a little bit about those three things? And then, if I am understanding, it seems like for those things to be taken into account to receive, result in more black taxpayers being audited, that black taxpayers, for example, have uh, more no no change audits. Like, how should I think about those three things with regards to how those parameters align with black taxpayers?
3: So I think you should think of these things as, um, you know, overall the. For example, let's take let's take uh, the no change issue. What focusing on no change rates um, means is that you are essentially emphasizing uh, cases that you have high certainty, right? You want to avoid no changes, so you want to ha- focus on cases where you have high certainty that there is some amount of of underreporting. Um, That means that, you know, you might be prioritizing cases where you're very sure over cases where, you know, you're less sure, but there might be a higher dollar amount.
1: So do they actually, I mean, do they actually like calculate it out to get an expected value or what what kind of loss function does the IRS use when they kind of evaluate that? Or you just don't know? We just can't know. It's in, in the inside the black box that the IRS doesn't let us see. The, the IRS keeps the
3: exact, you know, models and and processes very secret because obviously they, they don't want this to be gameable. Um, so we're not like it's not like, oh, the IRS told us here's our loss function. And then we just said, well, obviously. Right. You're, you're focusing on the, the wrong things. Right. Instead, we sort of analyze um, different models that could uh, you know, that focus on one thing or another and see how that affects disparity. Um, that's actually, a, I think, uh, a useful way of thinking about how you extract these kind of general principles about what different things might be focusing on and, and how they uh, impact your disparity, even if you don't have, ac- even if you have to treat the underlying process as somewhat of a black box.
1: So, so as, as another way to, to put this is that the IRS wants to, wants, doesn't want to audit people where after the audit, they don't get any more money. And so they have some kind of function that says like, whatever we do, we just don't want to audit people where we won't get back any more money. And on average, black people are more likely to pay back more money and it's not higher dollar terms. It's just more, I guess, is that correct?
2: So I think the way, one way to explain this is, uh, you know, we don't necessarily have full visibility over how IRS is selecting cases for audit, but we do have a sense of the types of audits they perform and the issues that they focus on in those audits. So for EITC audits in particular, they do a lot of uh, correspondence audits or audits by mail uh, for issues relating to, say, dependent eligibility for the Earned Income Tax Credit Um Right, we know that they do a lot of these audits. These audits are very inexpensive to perform. They basically cost as much as a postage stamp. They're flagged by you know automated automated decision rules rather than an auditor reviewing a return. And so, you know, that's that's part of you know what we think is driving the disparity here is the focus on these specific issues rather than the the total um, scope of the return and the potential for underreporting uh, on other areas of the return. So you mentioned earlier, um, you know, one of the mechanisms we examine when we do these counterfactual audit policy analyses is uh, the share of, say, self-employed EITC returns relative to wage earning EITC returns that end up being audited. And, you know, this, this, I think, connects to issues of how much funding the IRS has and the resources that they have. But what we do know is that they tend to audit a lot more of these, these wage earning EITC returns and focus on these specific uh, eligibility issues, but we do know we see in the data that there's a lot of noncompliance among self-employed EITC returns, and it includes, you know, not just eligibility but also income reporting. And so, if the IRS had the resources to focus on more of those EITC returns, right? We find um, preliminary evidence that that might help address the disparities that we observe.
0: Can Can I just follow up on one thing that you mentioned? A couple things that are really interesting, but I think it might be useful for people to understand what exactly you mean by an audit in your paper. So maybe just talk to us a little bit about that, because I think when like when I think, oh, my gosh, I'm going to get audited, it's like somebody's going to show up at my door. They're going to like want to go through all of my files. It's going to be like a nightmare. I'm going to have to call in like the CPA reinforcements or something. And I'm going to be like crying at nighttime for three days in a row, which I already do. But yeah. okay. so what Is that what's happening here? And it sounds like no, because you just said something that made me think no. So talk to us about what is an audit in your paper.
2: So there are several different types of audits that IRS could perform, right? I mentioned correspondence audits. This is basically the IRS sending you a letter asking you to verify certain pieces of information on your return. Uh, There are also uh, office and field visits, right? Like you go into an IRS office or the IRS comes to you. Um, But the most common and vast majority of uh, EITC audits are correspondence audits, right? So the taxpayer is receiving a letter, letting them know that there's issues with their return, and asking them to provide supplemental information. So some additional context around these EITC correspondence audits is that they have a very high non-response rate of about 50%. So half the people who get these letters don't respond and it's impossible for us to determine if it's that because if that's happening because they're truly not eligible or because they don't know how to respond right they don't have you know in some cases the benefit of a preparer that they can turn to to help them formulate a response and in addition to that unlike most other groups of taxpayers when an eitc claimant is audited their refund is withheld until they can verify that the inf- they're truly eligible for these these tax credits and so Uh, You know, there are additional concerns with this population uh, in terms of the correspondence audits um, that they're receiving and the high rate of these audits.
0: So do you think it's possible that someone gets one of these letters, which, by the way, I got one the other day, but not from the federal government. I got it from the uh, state of Idaho,
1: the blessed Um, state of
0: Idaho, the blessed state of Idaho. But in any case, um, I got one of these. And when I first got it, I'm like, oh, dang, what did I do wrong? Now, I have a Ph.D. in accounting, so like I kind of know at least a little bit what I'm what I should do. But it kind of like freaked me out just a little bit. And um and I and I then then two things happened. One was like it said that I had done something wrong and I needed to send in a bunch of information. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. It's gonna take a long time to gather. But I finally just went and got all the information to send them everything. And I but I did it kind of at the last minute and then I saw a thing that said you owe X number of dollars. And I'm like, I'll just pay it. So I just sent a check. Okay. Because I'm like, ah, forget it. Now, it turned out when the state of Idaho got my information, they decided that I did it right in the first place. They sent me a check back saying that I had done it right. But um, I'm wondering, like, how many of these people see this and they're just freaked out because the IRS said something to them. And they're just like, I'd rather not have the credit. I think I'll just ignore this and forget it. Is that is that what's happening here, do you think?
2: You know, I think we just don't know right? Uh, it's hard to say without more information uh, from these individuals who aren't responding. You know, it, it,
0: But isn't, it that, case. isn't that how the IRS is then going to determine that in the end there was, in fact, an adjustment and they don't want to have non adjustments So it's like, if you can ever send a letter where there's just like, nobody's going to respond, then there will be an adjustment. It's like, the whole thing seems a little bit circular to me.
2: Yeah, it certainly looks that way.
1: So when I mean, you mentioned that the majority of these EIT audits are just letter audits, do you do you like examine kind of audit by audit? Who's more likely to have face-to-face audits?
3: Most of these uh, face-to-face audits are not going on in, to, in the uh, EITC, uh, you know, set of taxpayers. Um, I think we did do some analysis, uh, some basic analysis on that point. But since we found the disparity within EITC claimants, we've sort of focused more on that, uh, that realm.
1: A couple of questions. These are kind of like opinion-based questions. So you you mentioned like these different cat- different policies that the IRS uses that might generate this response. Do you think that these policies are are wrong and that the IRS shouldn't have these policies, or these are just like examples of like now we know it's this policy that's leading to this result? What what do you think the IRS should actually do? I mean, let's take the no change, no change rule. Do you think the IRS shouldn't try to minimize the number of people getting a getting audited or getting a letter that don't have an adjustment, or is that or is that not something they should do?
3: So first off, normatively, our paper doesn't really take a stand on, on this particular question. And I think we should just be clear to say that, you know, when if you're asking for our opinions, we can give them, but that's not the paper. That's a little beyond the paper. Um, sorry, Evelyn, it looked like you were going to reply and I cut you off. So, okay. Um, so for this, this particular question, uh, I think that The IRS's problem is very complicated. There's no question that, you know, it's difficult. They get 150 million returns, uh, you know, every year, or that's what it was in in 2014, roughly. They can only audit half a a percentage, uh, more or less, of taxpayers. Um, And obviously, you know, revenue is a primary concern. Um, Disincentivizing, underreporting is is an important concern. Um, But there are other concerns too. And so, you know, in particular, for for this issue of disparity, right? Um, to the to the extent that these choices could be made differently and improve disparity without sacrificing revenue, which is how it seems in our work, it's it's kind of like a, a win win. I mean, why wouldn't we want to make policy choices that end up with similar amounts of revenue and don't incur this disparity? Now, of course, you know this is a this is a paper that is, I don't wanna say the first of its kind, right? Because obviously people have done work on thinking about different policies, but like now we know about this disparity. Um, So really evaluating all the different ways that the IRS could address this, I think that will take more work and and really evaluating the trade-offs carefully, right? It'll take more work. But at least in principle, if we can make different policy choices um, that really don't sacrifice our revenue objectives and and do better on disparity, like you know, why wouldn't we? Is that that's that's my opinion, you know. Others- so to be
1: so to be clear, when you say revenue as an account, I mean, there's I, I come from all sorts of different places. as like a financial account. You think of revenue as just like money coming in. When we talk about government revenue, also we just think about money coming in. Do you do you mean like net income? Are you taking into a, the account the costs of the audits? That does seem to be a big play here, or a big piece here that the IRS is doing a lot of these very 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 cheap audits, and those are the ones that have most of this bias and so you might get more money but at a much higher cost and actually net net you might come out behind if you're to change your audit policy
3: so you know there is a there is a of course a place for looking very narrowly at the ROI in terms of a dollar spent how much do you recover that's true. But at the same time, what that kind of incentivizes is not great either, right? Like if I just get, if I am I'm rich and I can afford enough lawyers to make it very costly for the IRS to, to come after me, I don't have to pay taxes. That, that also doesn't, doesn't make so much sense to
0: me. So is it, does it make, I mean, this, this is sort of a fascinating philosophical debate. Do, do we want to um, audit for the purpose of collecting more revenue or do we want to audit for the purpose of encouraging compliance with the law those seem like very different objectives and does has the IRS ever stated what which of those is their objective
3: i think they're both i think they i don't think they will tell you they have one objective and i don't know if they will say that you know we can list all our objectives or not you can ask you can ask them but certainly, I think revenue is important, and I think disincentivizing, you know, non-compliance is certainly important. And I think equity is, uh, is important to, to, you know, at least keep in mind, you know, as much as possible. Um,
0: okay, so, so I have a, another question. Um, in your paper, in the introduction, you write that the unconditional disparity um, suggests that black taxpayers... Pay- Black taxpayers are audited at between 2.9 to 4.7 times the rate of non black taxpayers. That's the unconditional disparity. Is the unconditional disparity the right one to highlight in the abstract or in the introduction and in the media and on Twitter, or is the conditional one? And maybe for people who aren't stati- statisticians, what exactly does that mean to be unconditional and conditional?
2: So in the paper, we do condition on a couple important uh, variables that would be of interest, obviously, in this context. So uh, for, for non-economists and non-accountants, right, uh, unconditional disparities, we're just trying to estimate you know, the, the, the differences in audit rates without taking into account things like income, things like underlying non-compliance, you know, just what is the difference in audit rates between Black taxpayers and everyone else? conditional disparities, uh, you know, answer the question of for people within who have comparable amounts of noncompliance, right? What is the difference in audit rates for those individuals? And, you know, what we find in the paper is that if you condition on income, right, most of these disparities are concentrated within this group of low income taxpayers, the differences there are, are quite stark, right? And, even if you condition on total dollar amount of non-compliance, right? There are differences pretty much across the entire range of that distribution, uh, significant differences. And so, you know, I'll leave it to the referees to decide which, which of those results is best to put in the abstract. Uh, but, you know, it is important to point out that when you take into account um, you know some covariates that you think would be natural to condition on. We do we do find that these differences persist and that they're significant.
0: They they persist, but and they're statistically significant. Are they as economically significant? Yes,
3: they're on a relative basis. They're roughly the same. You know uh, something like three to five. We can go back to the actual paper and get you numbers on these comparisons if you'd like. But they are um, you know similar magnitude um, on a relative basis.
1: So again just to reiterate so conditioning on income just income black taxpayers are still three to five times as likely to get audited even if you control for income
3: it depends on which part of the income space that you're in i mean this
1: is part of the the entire distribution
3: if you're if you're saying over the entire distribution then you're kind of unconditioning right you're just going back to the overall what i mean is if you look among eit you know low income people let's say you know 30 40 50k Something like that, three to five times. Yeah, that's a right order of magnitude. If you're looking at higher incomes, etc., I'm not sure if it's exactly that much. I think it's it's not as um as as high, right? But if you're looking at you know closer to the EITC, it is it is uh, even if you condition on income, right? So you hold hold income the same, it's a, it's a higher rate. If you look at you say, okay, well let me look at um you know holding uh Filing status the same. It's also again twice to three times as likely. If you guess look I guess at- I'm
1: not sure why it's interesting to hold income the same if you're limiting income between being between ten thousand and forty thousand dollars. That's a very narrow little piece of the income district, and that's about what qualifies you for the EITC.
2: So we look at other bins of income. I think we go up to the the top bin is I think one hundred and sixty thousand plus. Uh, so you know the. We find that the largest absolute and relative disparities are concentrated in this lower end of the income distribution, that does correspond to the population of individuals who would be claiming the Earned Income Tax Credit. Um, so that that is, I think, an important finding. If you go to other parts of the distribution, higher income taxpayers, we do see significant differences, but they're just not as stark, right? We have this one figure in the paper where you know we look at this distribution, and it's there's just a spike. Um, and the audit rate for black taxpayers around this lower part of the distribution.
3: But if you look at it, it's like everywhere in that graph, there is a a significant difference. It looks like about, I think, you know, 2x if I recall correctly, but we haven't, you know, tried to quantify that one as much. But you can see that it's like everywhere, essentially, there is that relative gap.
0: Okay, so I think I'm looking at the figure. I think it's figure four, and I'm going to try to describe it to the people who are listening. So there's a figure, and on the x-axis, which is going across the bottom, it says reported income. And it goes from zero to 20,000 to 40,000 to 60,000, all the way up to 160,000. And on the y-axis going up the graph, it says audit rate. And if you're clear down where you have zero income, the audit rate is pretty close to zero. And if you go way up to 160,000, the audit rate is about a half a percentage point. So one one in every 200 returns is audited or something like that. And if you, there's two lines on this figure. One is for black taxpayers and one is for non-black taxpayers. And the lines are roughly parallel for most of the figure, but the black one is a little bit higher than the um, non-black in all places, except right in the distribution where it's around $20,000, in which case the black audit rate sort of spikes up to about three point five percent instead of one percent, which it would be for uh, non non black audit uh, non black taxpayers, and so what you're saying is, I think this is where I think what you're saying and what Jeff is saying is kind of both true. The the three to five percent, which is in the abstract, is true if you're in the bucket that's sort of um, right there at the twenty thousand dollar range. When you go out, there's still a disparity, but it appears, at least from this figure, that the disparity is like much smaller in the higher income distributions.
3: Yeah, in an absolute, it is it is much smaller. Um, but if you measure it relatively, it's still like a 1.8 to 2x, I think. I mean, I think those lines are actually like 0.4 or so and 0.8, 0.
0: So that'd be like a double or something so I mean which is another point to make I mean statistics are kind of funny things, right because when you hear, oh, you're five times more likely, it's like, oh my gosh, you're getting audited like every time, but actually if the the base rate is like a half a percentage point and it's five times more likely, what that really means is two and a half out of a hundred uh, uh returns are getting audited, it's not like
1: and and again, by audited means getting a letter, half of which get ignored,
0: yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's just
1: And
3: also don't get, uh, you know, get, get their, their refund. Don't get their refund,
0: yep. Right? Yep. And they don't get their refund, which is important, right? I mean, that's an important thing to point out. Especially
3: for these low-income earners, uh, the refund can actually make up a large portion of their, their, you know, annual income.
0: It reminds me a little bit of sometimes we see studies that examine things like cancer and it says, oh, if you eat, um, I don't know, carrots, your risk of cancer gets cut in half. And it's like, oh man, I should eat carrots like all the time. But it's like your risk of cancer is like maybe one percent, and now it goes down to like a little less than one percent. But the percentage change is like really huge. But it's like, but 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 that doesn't change the fact that for the people who get audited here, like it could be like a serious quite, thing quite for costly. them. Yeah. yeah, very costly for them.
1: So yeah. I have one, maybe one last question. Maybe Scott has some more questions. So kind of the what has impeded this type of research, which is quite important. Uh, in the past has been the lack of data on race on a tax return. I think there's been kind of a, a, a camp of people that would really like to see race on a tax return and some that would really not like to see race on a term, tax return. Incidentally, the tax museum behind me actually has a tax return that has race data on it. Some states uh, well into the past had race on their tax return. And it was not for good purposes. It was like Southern states in the twenties and thirties ask about intense twenties and thirties ask about uh, race. So they were not like uh, trying to increase equity, but rather destroy it by asking about this. Um, in your opinions, would you like to see a race line on the tax return? So I can uh, take a stab at
2: this first. Uh, you know, I think. If we had direct access to self-reported race data, that would have saved us a lot of math, certainly, and would have given us uh, more precise estimates. So I think it's important to have access to that data. I personally am not super picky about how it happens. If it's listed on the return, you know, I think that would be fine. Uh, There are discussions to be had about concerns that that might raise for taxpayers, right, when they're filing these returns, uh, another option is to link directly to census data, which, as I understand it, on the IRS side, is not necessarily possible. Um,
1: so, why can't they link to census? That actually there's another question. Why can't they link to census data? I believe they do that for other purposes, don't they?
2: Yeah, I am not a hundred percent clear. My understanding is that there's some some legal uh, like a policy issues. against it. That is my understanding. Yeah, uh, but I think they link census- to
1: census to get like birthdays, I believe.
2: They do have some data from the Social Security Administration. Social Security, uh, okay. Yeah. So
0: But I but I can see this I can see that going exactly the opposite way. I can imagine taxpayers saying, I don't want the IRS to have my race because that might cause the 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 non benevolent uh taxing authorities to kind of disproportionately audit me. And if they don't have my race, it's not possible for them to do that.
3: It's certainly, you can imagine that it might be very sensitive to ask for uh, race on a, on a tax return. Um, that is certainly a concern um, that, that I can understand. Uh, so, but as Evelyn has said, right, it's not the only way, asking for race directly is not the only way we could get access to it. Um, if it were sort of by policy, um, you know, with appropriate uh, safeguards, um, even perhaps using formal mathematical uh, privacy guarantees like differential privacy, um, the ability to link uh, census data or, you know, other government data where they do have access to race would really enable this kind of disparity research um, to be performed a lot more easily. I think there has been in the past a sort of um, thought that if we don't have race, you know, we can't really be creating disparity or, or anything like that. So, like, let's just avoid it. but. Uh, first off, you know we, as we show here and as has been shown in, in other places that's that's not true because the decisions that you make can have different uh, impacts on different groups even if you're totally not not trying to. Um, so it's very hard to measure disparity without access to to something like this um, even if you're so even if you're not directly asking for it, it, it would probably be very um, you know useful for um, disparity. Assessments, uh, equity assessments, and so on to have some way of getting at this.
0: That's very interesting. Well, uh, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you both, uh, Hattie and Evelyn, for coming on to talk to us about your very interesting paper, which um, I think is getting a lot of publicity. And I think that um, might change the nature of the conversation we have about auditing and. taxpayers and the disparities that might exist, whether they're intentional or unintentional. So thank you so much for joining us.
2: We hope
3: so. Thank you so
0: much.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: I'm Scott Diring. I'm professor of accounting at Duke University, and I'm joined as always by Jeff Hoops, my co-host. Our guests today have been Hattie Elzane and Evelyn Smith, co-authors on our recent working paper called Measuring and Mitigating Racial Disparities in Tax Audits. Thank you for joining us. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye.